Well, welcome back. Welcome back. And you have a seat. And uh, turn your Bibles to uh, chapter 14 of the book of Luke. Why are we doing chapter 14 of the book of Luke? Oh, because it's the next chapter. <laughs> if you need a Bible, raise your hand, and I'm going to ask Jess McCall if she'll pass them out. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Jess McCall will get you a Bible. You're going to want to follow along in, uh, with us. Uh, if you don't know where Luke is, no big deal. The Bible has a table of contents. Just look in the front. But you're going to want to follow along uh, in, in that book. So uh, turn with me there. So listen, why would I say... Why me, Lord, when I'm teaching? Well, I just got to, you know, sometimes I think I share too much, and you guys get shocked a little bit about what I'm sharing. But I don't know if you know this, but the pastor's human. (laughs) And the beauty of going through verse by verse, chapter by chapter is, I can't avoid anything, even if I wanted to, which... Sometimes I, it, the thought enters my mind, okay? Just being frank with you. Uh, they're going to throw me out, but there you go. So this is one of those chapters. This is one of those chapters. Remember, I told you that we're in the book of Luke. Luke is a physician. He's a real live medical doctor. That's what he did. He was a medical doctor, and he's the one that describes Jesus in all his humanity, right? Jesus is fully God, fully man. And he stresses his humanity and tells us about how he likes to sleep. Did you know Jesus likes to sleep and eat and was, you know, you, you, you know, he, he was like us, but, and yet still fully God. It's a mystery. And so Luke tells us about that, but the one great thing about Luke that I think uh, blesses your heart, it blesses my heart, is uh, Luke is the universal gospel. He's the one, although all of them do this, this one especially, this gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, this gospel stresses that the gospel is for everyone. So I don't care what you look like, this color, that color, this socioeconomic status, that socioeconomic status, you live on that side of the tracks or this side of the tracks, you belong to this political party or to that political party, the gospel's for you. And Luke, time after time after time, keeps telling us, and now we are at the back end of Jesus's ministry. You know, basically, he lived and, or excuse me, ministered publicly for about three years, give or take. And we're now at that place where he's coming down from the north of Israel and he's coming to Jerusalem. So you say, okay, why do I need to know that? Well, I think you need to know that because the Bible tells us he willingly went down there. He purposefully went to Jerusalem. Why did he do it? So that you could be reconciled back to the Father. For eternity. You could be reconciled to the Father. I could be reconciled to the Father. So as we are reading this, as he's coming down from Galilee to Jerusalem, from the north to the south, he's now crossed over outside the land of Canaan. He's east of the Jordan in a place called Perea, a region called Perea. 
There's two main bodies of water, I guess three. There's the Sea of Galilee in the north. There's a river called the Jordan River that connects the two. And there's a southern lake or sea called the Dead Sea. Perea is just to the right or east of the Dead Sea and a little bit above. It's a region over there. And Jesus now is coming back through there. And when we uh, left off last time, remember there was a king out to kill him. King Herod. They said, you better leave from this place and get out of here, get to Jerusalem, because King Herod wants to kill you. And remember, we talked at length. I used to read the Gospels and think, oh no, the wheels are falling off of Jesus' life and he's in trouble, like some sort of mystery. Like, you know how the music plays and you're like, oh, dodge that, dodge this. That's not this. Jesus was on God's timetable and knew exactly when it was that he was going to die. And he purposely did it because it was joyful for him to take the death so that he could defeat death and you and I could have life. Oh my, what a story. There's none like it. So I'm going to read to you chapter 14 or some of chapter 14, and then we'll come back and talk about it. It's this, verse 1, chapter 14, the word of the Lord. Now it happened as he went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath, that they watched him closely, and behold, there was a certain man before him who had dropsy. You're saying, what is dropsy? Well, you're not a medical doctor, but remember, Luke is. And Jesus, answering, spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? But they kept silent, and he took him and healed him and let him go. And then he answered them, saying, Which of you, having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into a pit, will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they couldn't answer him regarding these things. So he told a parable to those who were invited when he noted how they chose the best places, saying to them, when you're invited by anyone to a wedding feast, don't sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you and him uh, uh, come and say to you, give place to this man. And then you begin with the shame, or with shame, sorry, to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place, so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled. It's a principle. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Then he also said to him who invited him to dinner, when you give a dinner or a supper, don't ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. Hmm. For you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now, when one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then he said to him, a certain man gave a great supper and invited many, and sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, Come, for all things are now ready. 
But they, all with one accord, began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a piece of ground, and I must go and see it. I ask you to have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. Still another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I can't come. So that servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Hey, go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. And the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded, and still there is room. And then the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come, and that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of these men who are invited shall taste my supper. Ooh. He goes on, now great multitudes went with him and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his father and mother, let me just let that sit there for a minute. Wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Hmm. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation is not able to finish it. All who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king doesn't sit down first and consider whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It's neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So pray with me, would you? Because we need help. (laughs) Well, Lord, we just come here and we ask that you would speak to us through your word, by your spirit. As we said, Lord, we need help. You're our all in all. You will guide us into all truth by your spirit, and we need it here in these times with this piece of scripture. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You guys ever seen that show, This Is Us? Oh, nobody has. Great, fantastic. This, won't, this will make this very bad. No. <laughs> There's a show on TV, apparently, because I don't really watch it, but it's called This Is Us. It's set in Pittsburgh, and it's about a love story and a family. And it's takes you from present day of how the kids are doing, and it does a lot of flashbacking. And that's the basis of the story. It tracks a family from the very early roots, mom and dad fall in love, get married, have twins, adopt a baby, have three kids, and you kind of see the, um, uh, the story from the present day going back into the, uh, you, you know, the past. And these people have been up and down, and there's issues and uh, 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 jealousies, and uh, there's, there's things within the family that are maybe hidden or, you know, disclosed, and it's a really a popular show, although I've never watched it. My wife had to tell me what it was about <laughs> the other day when I was quizzing her. Why am I bringing that up right here? <laughs> uh, because this story in Luke 4 is us. 
This was said and written about all those thousands of years ago. And of course, Jesus was talking of the times, but if you fast forward to today, this is us. And Jesus now, as you know, is coming down, he's coming from the north, and he's getting ready to go and march up the hill to Jerusalem and die on our behalf and take the wrath of God. And all the while, he's still teaching and loving the people who are his followers, his disciples. But there's also something else he's doing. He never stops reaching out to all of them. You know, this is the sixth or seventh, depending on who you ask, (laughs) time in the Gospels that Jesus now is provoking the religious leaders called the Pharisees by what they consider working on the Sabbath. It's the sixth or seventh time, folks. If Jesus did something six or seven times and it's recorded in the Gospels, guess what? A, there was a problem with it, and B, he wants us to know about it, them to know about it, and us too. And one of the things that the Pharisees did is they got wrapped up in rules and regulations. You see, you had the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Remember that commandment? But what happened then is the religious leaders of the day built up these traditions and things around that commandment that put a heavy burden on themselves and the people. I mean, stacks and stacks of ordinances. On the Sabbath, you can't, I'm making up the numbers, so don't quote me on, you know, you can't go 25 steps, but if you go, or you can go 25 steps, but if you go 26, you've just worked. And remember, they would get around that by attaching a string or a rope to their house and put it out there so they could get farther down the road and then walk from the end of the rope so that they could still remain within the bounds of the traditions. And, and, and on and on it goes. You have seen him battle with these people. There were some great Pharisees, Pharisees or these, this religious sect that adhered strictly to the law and the traditions. And what happened is, it, it's something that started out great. Obviously, the Ten Commandments, because of the people's traditions, the people started to lose their way about what this is all about. It's a heart issue, not an exterior issue. And we've talked about that at length through the book of Luke. You can come here. Listen, listen. You can come to your church a hundred years in a row. But if you don't have the Lord deal with what's in there, it's just tradition that hangs people up. You could be on the committees. You could uh, uh, give the money. You could kneel in your services and get up and do stuff like this over and over and over again. And it means nothing unless there's something in here, a heart transformation. Unless you're counting on the finished work of Jesus Christ for the penalty for your sins and his resurrection for your new life, you're barking up the wrong tree. And he goes on and on with these Pharisees. Now, there were some good Pharisees within the Gospels, but by and large, they bound the people up and put heavy burdens on them. And Jesus said, I didn't come to give you a heavy burden. I came to make you free. 
So here he comes, listen, one of the rulers of the Pharisees, like a really important guy, in verse 1, has him come over for a party, a a dinner. Look in verse 7. He told a parable to those who were invited. He he talks to the Pharisees in 1 through 6. He tells a parable to the guests in 7 through 14. Then there's somebody that interrupts him in verse 15. So verse 15 through 24, he takes the opportunity to minister to that one person. Obviously, the others can hear. But also, there's a great multitude that are listening to him. He takes the opportunity from 25 through 34 to the end of the chapter to speak to them. Listen, folks, I want you to remind you, this one, Jesus, is marching to his death I don't know about you, but if I'm about ready to die, you know who I'm thinking about? This guy. What can I pack in to my last month or my last three months, right? How can I pamper me? Here he continues to pour out his life for many. What do you mean? You know this. Paul says this in Ephesians 5. We're to walk in wisdom. You know this. See then that you walk circumspectly. And the Bible's honest, isn't it? Don't walk as fools. Hey, fools. <laughs> Talks to me. But, but, but walk as wise, and here it comes, redeeming the time because the days are evil. I, I want you to see something that we're going to see here today. The ultimate in redeeming the time. Here he is, and he's invited to a party. He's marching to his death on our behalf. And he takes the time to accept the invitation to go to the Pharisees' party. The very ones who are wanting to kill him. Now, come on. That is divine. He's redeeming the time. He talks this parable to the one uh, who were invited. He talks the parable. Oh, I missed one. He talks of a, uh, a parable in verse 12. He talks to the host himself. Uh, he talks to those, the one who interrupts him. He talks to the great multitudes. He takes the time at a party, marching to his death to redeem the time. He's full of grace and truth. He came not to heal the righteous but to those who are sick. And he knows these groups of people have a problem. Their hearts are evil. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's none wicked, no, not one. He's at a party. He's marching to his death, and he just keeps redeeming the time. What else does this say to us? Look at this in this verse. We're going to talk about salt, but also in Colossians 4, 6. Oh man, is this convicting. Uh, let your speech sometimes be with grace, seasons with salt. Nah, it doesn't say that. It actually says, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. In fact, if you're at a party, salt, grace, speech. If you're at home, salt, grace, speech, If you're in the boardroom, salt, grace, speak, you get it. No matter where you go, a a Holy Spirit-filled Christian walking in the Spirit. 
be full of grace and truth. Jesus was the perfect blend of grace and truth. That's in the book of John. What comes pouring out of him is grace and truth all at the same time. Oh, by the way, when we're at a party filled with the Holy Spirit, it ain't about the pirates and the Steelers and the penguins. It can be as an open door, of course. Trust me, I know the scores. But God is sending you there on purpose. Here he comes, and a hated Pharisee, or a Pharisee that hates him, invites him over to the house to eat bread. But look, it's not sincere. They're inviting him, not because they love him. These ones want to watch him closely. Why? Because they want to kill him. But he goes. Folks, if you're a Republican and a Democrat has you over for the uh, lunch, go. If you're a Democrat and a Republican invites you over and you're, you claim the name of Christ, go! Can you believe that we've divided like this? Go! You have a mission that's so big and so great, the grace of God. Go. So he goes. He even knew that these ones wanted to trap him. They watched him closely, and behold, there's a certain man who had dropsy. What does that mean? It means his tissues had uh, 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 swollen up with water. He was bloated and, you know, uncomfortable to look at. And, and it was really sad for this man. And look what these Pharisees, these religious people do. They bring him in there, probably embarrass him, and they sit him right in front of Jesus, but don't get the story mixed up. <laughs> they didn't ask Jesus anything. <laughs> and yet Jesus answered them because the Bible tells us in John chapter 2, Jesus knew what was in the hearts of men. He knows and he answers the questions. He takes control of the situation and proactively ask them a question. Don't get this story mixed up. They didn't ask him anything. They just sat a man in front of him, and he goes, he didn't say this, but he, he, he knows what they're thinking, so he goes like this. He goes, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now, he's put them in a great predicament. Because if they say no, how sick is that? You mean if my animal falls into a ditch, I can work all afternoon and pull him out? But to heal on the Sabbath would be work? Whew, that sounds upside down. It sounds kind of sick, to be honest with you. By the way, it's also an interesting question to ask because none of them have the power to heal. Only he does. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath if they say yes, all their friends are mad? He's put them right in the crosshairs. And here's what I want you to know. <laughs> Don't read it like I used to read it. He's actually got them on trial. Here's another thing. Rabbit trail, but not really. 
You want to be an effective evangelizer? Here's Evangelism 101. Answer the questions that you know people are asking in their hearts. You know where you can go to look at that? The book of Ecclesiastes. You can look at the whole Bible, but you can go Ecclesiastes in particular. Oh, by the way, you could go to Job. We just had it come up on Friday in our lunch program. Why do bad things happen to good people? Job. And stealing this from another pastor, but it does make so much sense. We said in response to that, that's the total wrong question to ever be asking. The, 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 um, uh, the, the question that we should be asking in life is not why do bad things happen to good people. We should always ask, why does anything good happen to bad people? Because we're all bad. The Bible says we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's not why do good or bad things happen to good people. It's why does anything good happen to bad people? Folks, the Bible tells us we're all sin, sinners. The Bible tells us our hearts are desperately wicked Ecclesiastes says our hearts chase after everything. Money, power, prestige, sex, glory for ourselves. All of life is vanity, he comes to the conclusion. And he says in chapter 8, our hearts are wicked and there's only one answer, and it's God himself. So if you want to be an effective evangelist, you don't even have to wait for the answers or to be questioned. Because you have the answers. So when you're around a group of people at a party or a lunch program or a soccer, when people are talking about the turmoil in the Middle East or COVID, you got them. There's opportunity right there to have them sit down and say, let me answer the real question you're asking. They don't even have to ask it. Jesus is amazing at it. These people didn't even ask him a question. He says, hey, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He's got them right in the crosshairs, but they kept silent. And he took him and healed him and let him go. Then he answered them saying, which of you having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into a pit will not immediately pull him out? Why did he say that? Because that was okay under the tradition. Can't work on the Sabbath. Can't heal on the Sabbath. That's work. But oh, by the way, if you're means of making money falls into a pit, you're okay there. Hypocritical, right? And see, that's what religion is all about. It's about external rules. Are there principles that Christians follow? Of course, but we follow them because we are saved, never to get saved. We're saved not by good works, but we're saved unto good works, of course. That just takes all of the pressure off. We know that we're justified, declared not guilty by the blood of Jesus Christ when we receive all that he has for us. But we don't want to get wrapped up in all the traditions that bind us up. Look what he does. He talks to the Pharisees. They're still sitting there. So now he turns his attention to somebody else. How would you like to be at the party? You might be one he talks to. I might be one he talks to. And he says this, to the invited guests, 
when he noted how they chose the best places. Now, you see, you need to know what happened in ancient uh, uh, times in the Middle East. What you would do if there was a great party or a, a, a great feast, if there was a great feast, there would be two invitations. There would be the first round of invitations that would say, hey, we're having a party. It would drive some of us up the wall. You know why? Because they didn't exactly tell you the date or the time. Wouldn't that bug you? It wouldn't go in your planner. It would kill Xander. I would be like, yes, this is what I need. But I wish I was more like him. But it has no time. What he'd say is, hey, here, you know, you're, you're invited to this massive feast. We're going to have a great feast. The Lord of the house is, and so we're his servants. We're giving you the first invitation you know, we're going to come back around on the day that the feast is and the food's ready, and you're all going to come over and we're going to have the feast. And that's how they operated back then. And if the servant then told you you were invited and he came and he brought you over there and now he's given you the second invitation, you'd sprint there. A lot of them would sprint there. Why would they sprint there? Because oftentimes these suppers or these banquets were like in a U-shaped fashion. You know, the head table up here and then tables going this way and they would recline. They didn't have seats. They would recline on their elbow. And, and, and the master of the feast would sit in the middle, in the middle of that first U part, whatever. I don't know what it's called. And, but if you could get closer to the master, that meant you were really special. In fact... You might work out some arrangements, did you catch it? That if you invite me and let me sit close, I'll repay you when I have the dinner and you can sit close to me, which means that people will think I'm important and big and have a lot of influence and it'll be awesome. And for people in the church, folks, for people outside the church, of course, that's the way people live. Just go check out the corporate world. That's it. But oftentimes, that's brought right into the church. I want you to see how I sit, where I sit. I have a pipeline to the pastor. He asked me to, you know, I mean, teach in the Bible college. Come on. I mean, people start to think this way, folks, and it's sick. And here, he says, when you're invited by anyone to a wedding feast, don't sit down in the best place. Because if you did that and somebody more honorable than you uh, were invited by the master and he who invited you and him come and say, hey, you got to give this place up. How embarrassing would that be? Uh, you need to sit down at the end of the U, at the top of the U. <laughs> well, you know? So that when he invited you comes, he may say, friend, go up higher. In other words, sit at the lower place, and then if you get the higher place, great. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now see, I want you to think of something, folks. Everyone before God ought to feel that the lowest place is the proper place for him or her. Now, now did you listen? I want you to hear that clearly. 
I didn't say you should feel miserable about yourself and denigrate yourself all the time. And you know, I'm a loser. And you know that false humility that a lot of Christians pour on. And it becomes an idol to them because they want you to think how humble they are. You know what I'm saying? They just always are bad-mouthing themselves. I'm a jerk. I'm a loser, right? That's not what I said there. This Pastor Alfred Plummer just says everyone before God ought to feel the lowest place is the proper place for him before God. Well, now let's unpack that a little bit. When we see ourselves appropriately before the Lord, like Isaiah in chapter 6, you know what we say? Oh, man, I am totally undone. I am totally shot out because he is holy and I am not. I know what goes on in my heart. I know the things that roll around in my head. I know the way I feel when someone cuts me off in traffic. Right? And so we appropriately know in the right way that we have a sin problem and he doesn't. By the way, that's the definition of worship putting him in his proper place, or actually putting you in your proper place in relation to him. That's worship. That's all it is. Whether you're singing, or whether you're working, or whether you're walking down the street, or whether you're playing a sport, or whether, here's a better one, or whether you're a spectator at a sport. Mm. He is holy. I am not. That's what the Bible tells us. You read it for any length of time, you go, wow. It's like a mirror. James tells us it's like a mirror. I see him as holy. I know I'm not. Which brings us to a place where we have a, a Savior who, look at this, we've been talking about it in Nehemiah. You know what God says to you through the gospel? You know what God says? He says, A, you belong. You matter. How do I know that? As many as received him... To them, he gave the right to become children of God. You belong in the family. You belong. You could never say, I don't belong anymore because you do belong to God and his family. You belong. So we see ourselves in a proper relationship to the Lord. We know we belong. Listen to this. We know we have worth. How do we know we have worth? Just because we read the Bible. God demonstrated his own love towards us, Romans 5, and that while we were yet sinners, Enemies, gross, spiritually, ugly, spiritually. He sent his son to die for him. I got to tell you, folks, that's the value of all value. What worth? We're worth something. We don't derive our worth from the things of the world or Instagram likes or because we have a great car or a bad house or a good house or whatever. That's not what we derive our worth from. We don't, hey, you know what that doctrine says to you? You can take criticism. When somebody treats you bad, you know what you say? Well, I'm deriving my sense of worth from the Lord, not from that person. I'm going to listen to what they say, take it in a healthy way, but it's not going to fracture me because my Lord values me, and I'm doing everything unto him. Here's the last thing that the gospel says. You have power and resource to live the life because the Bible tells us that as soon as you surrender your life to Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit of God comes to live in your life. So now listen to this. You have belonging, you're accepted, you have worth, and you have power. Why do I tell you that in the context of this story? Because you're so content in the gospel, 
You don't have to be at the front. In fact, you know what we are? We're, man, we're people who want others to succeed. Uh, just, just let me ask you something. If somebody in your office gets a bonus and you don't, how do you feel? Just be honest with yourself. Are you rooting for others? If you're at a basketball game and your team gets cheated and beat, oh man, I'm convicting myself. Are you rooting for those people in the Lord? If your friend is the one who's always getting noticed and people talk, are you rooting for her or him? See, we're people who root for others because we're so secure in the Lord. And here, he says, you would go to the lowest table because who cares? I'm content in the Lord. I don't care if I'm first or last or anywhere ever you put me, Lord. That's fine with me. And the Lord says, when you're able to do that, you'll be exalted. See, that's the normal. Listen, listen, time out. You say, well, gosh, that's attaining heights that I don't know if I can attain. No, Jesus says this is the normal position and thought and attitude of a a spirit-filled Christian. This isn't for the special few. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Turn over to Philippians 2. Just go there. Philippians 2. I want you to see it. Jesus, in verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. The mind of Christ available to us. Staggering. Who being in the form of God, didn't consider it stealing or robbery to be equal with God. He's a man, but he's God. But made himself of no reputation, take the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of man, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Therefore, God also has exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those of earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here, what is... Here's what Jesus is telling us. If you want to be exalted into heaven, you'll be one who'll die to yourself. Look, 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 for the greater good of others. We're going to talk about it in a minute here. You know what taking up your cross means? Here's what most people think taking up your cross is. Oh, my goodness. My third child is so wild, I'm bearing the cross with that one. Or, Lord gave me arthritis my whole life, but that was my cross to bear. Well, I hear people say stuff like this. Man, my finances are in the tank. I'm bearing a cross. You aren't bearing a cross. The Lord does that to the pagan and to the Christians, or those circumstances happen to the pagan and the Christian. You know what bearing your cross is? It's dying to self so that others succeed. (laughs) Seeing others come to know him and to be raised up and to pour out your life, like Paul said, like a drink offering with everything you have so that others can come to know him and be saved. That's bearing your cross. It's not finances, although he's interested in that too. It's not our maladies, 
although he's interested in that too. It's dying to self. That's the message of the cross. And that's where the American church is lacking. We have somehow got to a place where we're preaching a person-centered gospel and not a Christ-centered gospel. When somebody presents the gospel, even the people now who are presenting the gospel want to tell the people who are, they're trying to convince to receive the gospel, everything's going to be better for you if you'll just receive the Lord. Hmm? Are you reading what I'm reading? No, but your sins will be forgiven, which is your chief and greatest need. And it's all by the blood of Jesus Christ. And now you're going to receive new life. So whether your circumstances here on earth are in the mountains or in the toilet, you have eternal life. See, that's dying to self. All for you, Jesus. Whatever you tell me to do, that's what I'll do. I'll sit in the lowest seat because I don't really care. I'm content wherever I am. But be honest with yourself. You like to be noticed. I like to be noticed sometimes. That's the flesh speaking, not the spirit. Then he also said to them who invited him, listen to this, the host, he's not exempt. Jesus is going to redeem the time. He turns his attention now to the host. And he goes, hey, host, when you give a dinner, don't ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. See, that's the key. I always tell you this, before I became a Christian, I know what I was doing, smiling, being nice, and then checking you out. If you could do something for me, okay, we'll spend time together. But if you don't have anything to offer me, I'll be polite and nice, but that's it between us. That's this. You invite the people who can pay you back, be invited back to another party or something. But when you give a feast, listen to this. Invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, people who can't repay you. They have nothing. See, that's the currency of heaven, is an invite where they can't do anything because they can't repay for you. For you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. You say to yourself, well, what's this all about? First of all, remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on his mount says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Remember that? And what is Jesus talking about in poor in spirit or the lame or the blind, the ones who can't see, right? Or the ones who can't walk properly or whatever. What is he talking about? He's talking about spiritual bankruptcy. In order for us to come to the Lord, we must recognize that we are spiritually bankrupt. We're all sinners and fall short of the glory of God. And we have in our flesh, without the Lord, we have nothing to offer to him. We can't even operate and do good things because without faith, all things are sin, the Bible tells us. Faith is what pleases God, trust, dependence. So there's that element to this. Jesus is speaking to that, but he's also just speaking to people who can't give anything back to you because you're to live your life. Listen to this. This is... an a doctrine that we don't live our life in the light of. And Jesus is saying, live in the light of this. You're going to receive your reward at the resurrection of the just. You say, what? Well, Jesus talks about it. You can go into John 5, and you can go into the book of Acts. It's, there's going to be, folks, a resurrection of the just 
or righteous. And there's also going to be a resurrected resurrection of the wicked. You can read it, 528 and 29. Go read it. And all he's saying really here is, if you want to have your reward here, you've been noticed. You're an important person. The important people comes to your parties. Your house looks amazing. Oh, Martha Stewart would be so proud. Your car, oh, the Range Rover and the latte and the cool Christian CDs and the Instagram program. Oh, it's just so beautiful. Okay, great. But your reward is just that and that only. You don't have a reward in heaven. He's saying, remember, your reward is when you go to the afterlife, when you go to heaven to be with him. That's your reward. And what Jesus is saying here is, I want you to live your whole life in light of the fact that you're going to heaven. You see that? Which is a radical call. It's a radical call. Do you make decisions based on whether or not you gain here in this world or you gain into the next? There's this one pastor called Kent Hughes. Maybe you've heard of him. He says this. When money or the things it can buy, when money or the things it can buy, ready? Hold on makes us hesitant about doing what we, feel, what we feel the Lord is calling us to, we're disciples of things and not of Christ. I'll read it again. When money or the things it can buy makes us hesitant about doing what we feel the Lord is calling us to do, we're the disciples of things and not of Christ. Wow. So true. Here he says, Live your light in, uh, uh, in light of the resurrection. The, you're going to be with the Lord, or you're going to be resurrected under the wicked. Now he turns his attention to those who sat at the uh, at one who sat at the table with him and heard these things, and he said to him, and now here's where it hurts. And he says, "Hey, blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom." You, you ever been, uh, uh, you know, Thanksgiving, and you're there, and you got your sparkling cider, and the whole family's around, and you're just feeling so warm and fuzzy, right? Because everybody's getting along finally, and you're at the Thanksgiving table, and you just want to give a toast, thank the Lord for how wonderful our family is. That's what he's doing, and he's one of the Pharisees. You see. Here Jesus has been for the last couple chapters talking about self-righteousness and you can't get in based on uh, your, your, your background, uh, whether you belong to this party or to that party. And Jesus is just going on and on, just giving it his best and his best is the best. And the, the, the Pharisee then gets to a stop in the story, a pause in the story, and he goes, well, thank goodness we're still going to heaven that's what he says right here. He's totally missed it. It's gone all over his head. Raise a toast because we're going to eat bread in the kingdom. You, you, you don't get that so much. But see, to one who had studied and known the Bible, there's a book called Isaiah, and these people did. They knew this inside and out, and they knew the prophets. And there's these one passages in Isaiah 25 that talks about what's going to happen in the kingdom of God. You know what's going to happen? In Isaiah 25 verse 6, here's what's going to happen. Isaiah 25 verse 6, and in this mountain, Mount Zion in Jerusalem, I'm saying that, I'm adding that in, 
the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of choice pieces, of fat things full of marrow, of well-refined wines on the lees, and he will destroy on this mountain the surface of the covering cast over all the people and the veil that is spread over all nations. And here, you love this one, don't you? I do. He'll swallow up death forever. And that's in Isaiah, talking about the future kingdom of God, that when God comes back and establishes his kingdom here on earth, and the Jews knew it, and the Pharisees knew it, and they're like, wow, we're here at a banquet, and he's talking, and you know, he's giving these hard sayings, but oh, wow, thank goodness we know the scriptures and we'll be there in heaven. Folks, this is 95% of people who attend church in America. I don't have the exact quotes or stats, but I'm pretty sure that many of us are fooled about what it is. We read our one-year Bible, we hear the teachings, and we just say, oh, but thank the Lord I'm there. And we should. I mean, we're counting on the, if we're counting on the finished work of Jesus Christ and his resurrection, yes, for our sins to be forgiven, to be reconciled back to God, and to be given new life, 2 Corinthians 5.17, and yes, but remember, a saved life becomes a changed life. We got people who read the back of a magazine and just go, yes, now I can live like hell. I'll just ask for forgiveness. <laughs> and lots of us even here are more worried that I just said the word hell than what the scriptures are telling us. Here he says, when one of them comes and says, blessed is he who eat in the kingdom of God, Jesus says to him, well, wait a minute, there's a great supper, Isaiah 25, 6, but hey, wait a minute, Revelation 19, when we come back with Jesus, we're going to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb, that's in the future, but see, the, these folks who are here are thinking, yes, and we're going to go to it. <laughs> He says there's going to be a great supper and invited many and sent his servants at supper to say to those who were invited, come for all things are now ready. See, it makes sense to you because there's two invitations. The invitations have gone out previously and now they're coming to the second invitation. Hey, come on over now. We're ready. The meal's going to be served. The feast is happening. Jesus is telling this to the people who are self-righteous, thinking they have it made because I'm of a certain party or I'm of a certain sect or I am a Jew. <laughs> and he says, the party's ready. You've been invited. Check this out. You've heard what I've been teaching you, but all of them with one accord. Here it comes began to make excuses. Excuses. See if these sound familiar. These are funny, man, but not funny. These, these, are, these are these ones that you kind of chuckle at, but want to cry. The first excuse was this. Why could I not be at the banquet in heaven? Why could I not be at the banquet in heaven, Jesus says? Because you have a piece of property. And you're totally preoccupied with it. <laughs> America. Another says, well, it's not really my property, but another one said, yeah, but I know I got these five yoke of oxen, which means there's 10. 
they're yoked together. I got these things that make me money, or I got these things that I need to test out, like transportation, or cars, or golf clubs, or ski boats. I'm just going to go out and test them. Now, you know what's really dumb about both of these? Who buys a piece of property without going to see it first? Of course you wouldn't. You've seen this property. You, it's, it's a dumb excuse. Who goes and buys a car? I shouldn't say this because I'm going to help do that tomorrow. Without driving it, I'm going to make that mistake tomorrow. Lord willing. But who, who goes without buying a car? No, no, no. You already went and test drove the transportation or the things that make you money. You already did that. But the excuse is, I got to go do it some more. Are you catching that? These are stupid excuses, Jesus is telling us. And here's the whole ringer. If it wasn't so sad, we would laugh. And the last excuse was, hey, I don't want to really be at the supper. I just got married. <laughs> but, but look, here's the sad part about it. Relationships are more important to me than being in the kingdom. How about that one? People do it all the time. I, I, I know. But you know, when I get this thing situated and I buy this property and I have my house fixed up to that, then I'll serve you, Lord. I, I know, but you know, what's wrong with, you know, boating season or hockey practice or, you know, I know it's on Sunday and I, I know it's Wednesday and I know you said you didn't, don't forsake assembling together. I, I know that or whatever, but, but you know, come on, this is just for a season. My kids are little and, you know, all this sort of thing. Excuses. I, I know, but you know... We love to travel, and he wants to, and she, and, and we just love, and, and I know Sunday's our day just to kind of, you know, read the paper and drink coffee together, and we never get to do that. Anybody ever heard any of these? I have. I've probably said them before. And Jesus says, okay. That servant came and reported these things to his master. Can you believe, you know when you're reading this, you get fired up. You know what you say to yourself? Who would turn that down? The most generous big banquet. And they all said, too bad, I'm not coming. That's what happens when we share the gospel. These are the excuses people make. Well, he comes, reports these things, and then the master goes, and he's angry. Did you notice that? The master is angry. There's righteous anger. And so he says to his servant, well, go out into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in here the poor, again, the spiritual bankrupt, and the maimed, the ones who recognize that they need a savior. In the story of the Bible, remember, Romans 1 tells us, the gospel is preached first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. That's kind of what this is talking about. But it's also saying, <laughs> you know, there's going to be some people who are going to make all the excuses go on to the ones who don't make excuses. And he says, Master, it's done as you commanded, and still there's room. And then the master said to the servant, go into the highways and the hedges. The, look at this. The people on the periphery. Not the cool people necessarily. Not the ones who have the beautiful Instagram posts. The ones who never get noticed. Go, go there. 
the ones who recognize they need a savior and share with them and ask them to come to the party. See, that's what you're doing when you're sharing the gospel. Come to the marriage feast of the lamb with us. You're not saying, hey, I'm going. You're not. You're saying, no, come with us by the blood of Christ. That my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. I would say this to you a lot, but you know what part of being the pastor is and being person who share the gospel is? Just getting people to pay attention. There's a lot of people walking through life who ain't paying attention. They'll read this and just go, okay, well, we'll deal with that later. Then he goes out to the multitudes. How could there be multitudes at a party? Because oftentimes they had these in the out court, outer courtyards of their homes. So people would be walking by, and Jesus had tons of followers, and apparently the followers are there. So think about this. He's got the Pharisees. He's got the host. he got the people who were invited. And he's got the guy who interrupts him. We just read that. And now he says, hey, my followers, listen to this. And now this isn't so much what the gospel is. That's found in other places of the Bible. This is about how we're to respond to the gospel, disciples. If you consider yourself a disciple, your ears should perk up right here. If you've never surrendered your life to Christ, Listen to the parable of the Great Supper, 15 through 24. Here, look at this. Great multitudes went with him. He turned to them and said, If anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his mother and fa- or father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. I didn't say this, folks. Jesus said this. You say, wait a minute. Hate? Hate. What does this mean? Well, listen, you're not used to writing this way, but you can find this in several places in the Bible. You know that? You can find that this in several places. In Romans 9.13, every time we go through Romans, this always bothers people. God says, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have what? I have hated. That's also coming from Malachi 1 and Malachi 2. And really what God's talking about in those situations is not some sort of emotional loathing or hate for Esau. It's just a way that God expresses preference. Do do you remember, uh, uh, you know, Jacob had two wives, Leah and Rachel. And when we get to the part where it says he hated Rachel, or excuse me, he hated Leah, we all get real uncomfortable, don't we? But it isn't really saying that. He's not saying you should love this one and not love this one. What he's saying is preference. We recognize, God says, I recognize you love Rachel more, but you do love Leah. It's a preference. Because if you're building your theology on one verse, you're always probably in trouble. Know what the Bible says. And the Bible says we're to love one another. We're to love our wives. We're to give our lives up. We're to love our children. No question. No question. But what he's saying here is, I don't want you to share the love that we have with anybody. That's all. A lot of people in the world, though, you know what they say? We've heard it at our home fellowships. Here's what's first in my life, my children. Here's what's second in my life, my husband or my wife, my spouse, and then God. And see, God is not saying that to us. He's saying, you put me first 
Develop this relationship, and then those other relationships that are down here, they're going to thrive, but only if you put me first. And he's telling you here, a disciple's life is a developing of a relationship with the Lord of the universe by Jesus Christ through the Spirit. You are to have a love that's not shared with anybody with Jesus and you. Isn't that tender? Beautiful? Who here likes to have a good dad? I do. Did you have a good dad on earth? Maybe you didn't. But you have a good father in heaven, the best. And then he says, for which of you intending to build a tower doesn't sit down first and count the cost? He's talking about discipleship. He's saying, listen, folks, this isn't just read a magazine, say a little prayer, and your life is always going to be perfect. No, count the cost. Who would build something like a tower and not think about it and what it's going to take to finish it? Or what king goes to war against another king and doesn't first consider whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him or with 20,000? In other words, what's the cost going to be to my troops if I lead them out into battle? We consider those things before we go do it. Or else, while the other is still great off, he sends a delegation and asks condition of peace. So likewise, whoever of you doesn't forsake all that he has, he can't be my disciples. Are you catching this? He doesn't forsake all that he has, can't be my disciples. Well, most people believe and teach, and I probably would agree with them. This is when you're deciding, <laughs> it's a terrible way of saying it, when you're coming to that place where the gospel has been presented to you, and now you're coming into a vital relationship with the Lord, you're saying, wow, I'm counting the cost. I know, I'm going to take up my cross daily and follow you, Lord, which means not my preferences anymore, not my life anymore. Your life is going to come flowing in and through me. So when, listen, folks, so I'm dead to myself. So when people treat me like I'm a nobody, what does it ever even matter? I am a nobody. The life of Christ is in me. When treat, people treat you like a servant, you are a servant. You've died to your rights in Christ. Now, that's not a popular thing to say. Here he's saying it. By the way, there's some other strains of thought. Warren Wearsby, G. Campbell Morgan say that's not us considering the cost. That's Jesus considering the cost of building you. I'll let you think about that. Be a Berean. But if you're not able to forsake all, then you can't be my disciple. Jesus said it, not me. Does that mean I have to go sell everything I have and give to the poor? Well, not necessarily. You have to be willing to sell everything you have and give to the poor. I'll read the Kent Hughes thing for you again. When money or the things it can buy makes us hesitant about doing what we feel the Lord is calling us to do, we're disciples of things and money and not of Christ. Boy, does he got something there. Are you willing to lay down all that's on your agenda for the Lord's agenda? He may never, ever call you to lay down your agenda, in a sense. He may not call you to Africa. He might not call you to a place you didn't want to go, uh, you know, I don't know, Michigan or something. <laughs> he might not call you to those places, but what he would call you to 
might be right there in your own backyard, but he's asking, do the things that you love possess you more than me? If they do, they're a problem, disciples, because you're going to go through hard things, and we have to make it to the end, the Lord's saying, and I want you to stick with it and be there and be dependable. And he says, good and faithful servant, not good and successful servant. Will you be there? Will you be there? Can you forsake all? And finally, he says this to the disciples. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It's neither fit for the land nor for the dung hole, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear you say, okay, salt, we're to be like salt. What does that mean? Well, you know this. In the old days, salt was a couple things. Preserving or a preservation agent. It preserved things like food. Second thing salt did, it cleaned things out like wounds. Third thing salt does is make you thirsty. And Jesus says, I want you to continue to have your saltiness. But if you get bound up, look at this, if you get bound up in things and relationships that are more important than me, saltiness drains out of you. There's this salt that was in the Dead Sea, and when they would mine it sometimes and they didn't put it in the proper place or store it in the proper place, it would lose its saltiness actually and be no good for anything. And in fact, they couldn't throw it away because anywhere that they threw it away, it was like toxic back in the old times. It would burn up a garden. It would just, so it was good for nothing. It was useless, but it was also destructive. And he's saying until the end, I want you to keep your saltiness so that you'll be a preservation agent in the culture. People stand up and they have these views and that views and we say, hey, we can't go along with that. We believe the Lord. You say, is anything ever even uh, affected by that? Lord says, I'll honor that. Your reward will be in heaven. Maybe your reward won't be here. You might even get ridiculed. But your reward is in heaven. Count the cost. Oh, saltiness. Not only is it a preservation agent, it's one, uh, it's one that cleans out. We just give people the Lord. We just keep talking to them about the Lord. We answer the questions they don't even know they're asking. We don't need a question to come firing at us. People sit in front of us, we give them the Lord. Because why? Because he's the only one that can clean our hearts and make us new. He's chosen to use us. Third, it makes people thirsty. Thirsty for what? Thirsty for the word. When we season our speech with salt and grace. Thirsty for the word, the Holy Spirit comes, they get saved, and there's fountains of living water flowing from them. They'll never be thirsty again. You have all the answers to people's thirst. Okay, finally. You know what I ask myself? Hang on with me now. I'm going to be done in one minute. Can you believe that? Two minutes. You know what I ask myself after this today? I was studying for this all week. Whew. Why would anybody do this? Turn with me to Revelation chapter 4. Why would anybody do this? We actually sang it today.
This is a picture, as we see it, of the church in heaven during the tribulation period, after they've been raptured. This is what we'll be doing in heaven for the seven years while we're in heaven, tribulation going on the earth. I recognize there's other views about that. The elders, there before the throne with crowns on their heads. And look what they are singing with the four living creatures. Holy, verse 8, holy, holy, Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And then look in verse 10, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever. Look. And they cast their crowns. No, that's not a group. That's a scripture. Before the throne, and here's what they're saying. As we receive our rewards at the resurrection of the just and we receive our crowns, we don't hoard the crowns and say, oh, I got more than you. You got more than me. You don't say that. You actually worship the Lord with your crowns. You lay them back at his feet, and here's what you're singing. You are worthy. Here's why I'm telling you this. Why would you, on the surface, look at Luke 14 and say, okay, sign me up. Here's why. Because God is so more perfect and beautiful and wonderful and majestic and pure and holy and good and kind more than anything you could think about or anyone you could think about or better. And in, when you get to heaven, this is just going to be a momentary time. You're not even going to be caring about the things that happen to you on the earth. You're going to be before the throne, casting your crowns, enraptured, just saying, you're worthy. If I had to do it all again, Lord, I'd gladly do it. He's worthy. So I'm going to pray. I think they're going to lead us out in song. If you've never surrendered your life to Christ, today is the day of salvation. I want you to come up and talk with us after and pray. If you've been a person who's struggling with possessions, or relationships being more important than the Lord, and you want to pray about that, I want to pray for you, with, or we want to pray for you. Up here, come up here. There'll be some people up here. We'll pray for you. I don't know about you, but I find myself in varying degrees of that. <laughs> Depending how far I am away from the Word of God or fellowship with God and His people, and when I get away from praise and prayer and start to grumble and complain, I really find myself in a degree that I don't want to be in. So come up and pray after. Talk with us. Let's do this. I'm going to go ahead and stand. I'm going to pray with you. They're going to lead us in worship. If we can get the screen down. Lord, thank you for this word. Thank you for this day. Lord, knit these things to our hearts. Help us to be single-minded because you were single-minded towards us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.